0: Furthermore, the equation E is equal to mc squared. And uh, here's the discovery.
1: I'm going to make him laugh again.
2: Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist Radio podcast. I am Isaiah Henkel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist Radio show. I am Isaiah Henkel with Cheeky Scientist. Very excited for today's show. We have a very special show lined up today, how PhDs can master the industry code, or in other words, how can you find the most fulfilling career path for you? So why was working in academia not fulfilling to you? It was likely deeper than not being paid enough. Something else was wrong. We're gonna tell you what was wrong and why you decided to transition out of academia. What made you finally take that first step in transitioning out and looking for something more fulfilling. There's a lot of behavioral psychology behind it. There's a lot you can learn from it and we are going to explore it today. We have a very special guest, author, executive coach, Darren Gold will be joining us today. He has a, a great book uh, that we're going to talk about as well. called called master your code, the art, wisdom and science of leading an extraordinary life. A lot about career development there too. We have a great show me the data section coming up as well. But we're going to start now with the PhD advantage section PhD advantage section. We're just going to make sure that we are lined up here. I'm not sure if we are live in the pre- We are live on the public page. Thanks, Lisa, and we are live. I think we're live on the public page with both. So if you're an associate, you can go to the public page and you can see the stream from both views. Great to see all of you on. Welcome to another cheeky scientist radio show. Today's radio show is about finding the most fulfilling career path for you. We have a great show me the data section coming up. And now we're gonna start with the PhD Advantage section. Before we do though, I wanna share a couple of things with you. The first is we have a brand new LinkedIn webinar coming up this Thursday. So in two days, January 16th, we're gonna be talking about 12 new LinkedIn strategies proven to get PhDs hired in 2020. This is a special webinar you'll you have never seen the slides in this webinar before we have a complete slide update brand new strategies to discuss it's specific for 2020 LinkedIn's algorithm has changed there are three major changes and nine smaller changes that are still important but we're going to discuss them all on this webinar you have to sign up here on this page go to CheekyScientist.com slash CSA LinkedIn webinar you can see here less than two days left to sign up. There's a 1 PM Eastern time and a 9 PM Eastern time that you can sign up to. So make sure you do that. We also have enrollment into our cheeky scientist association, the world's largest job search training platform specifically for PhDs with the world's largest PhD only job referral network. It's also the only program of this size that was created by PhDs and can specifically help you, no matter what your PhD background is in, get hired in industry. If you wanna learn more about this program, just go to phdsgethired.com. That's the easiest way to find it, phdsgethired.com. And you'll be taken to this page, cheekyscientist.com association-learn-more. And you can see how the association helps PhDs get hired, how it can help you get hired in industry. That's what the program is focused on. Now for the PhD Advantage section, I wanna talk a little bit about the three things that you need to align yourself with in order to find career fulfillment. So in the Cheeky Scientist Association, we do these weekly Teaching Point Tuesday videos. And one of the videos that I, I did recently, I talked about how to get recruiters to respond to you. It can be very hard, especially if you don't have industry experience to get recruiters who usually work outside of an organization to reply to you. Usually to start, they see you as a number, because their goal is to get as many people hired as possible, because a lot of them are working on commission and many PhDs fail to get a recruiter's attention or to get a response from them because they are only focused on one of these three things, which is showing that you are a good fit for the, the position, the job position. What does this mean? It he's talking about your results, your technical skills, your transferable skills, things that we discuss a lot uh, on our cheeky scientists blogs on these radio shows and so forth. Many of you know this, you have to show the results you've achieved and how they're relevant to the position you're trying to get hired into. This shows that first level of alignment, but there's two deeper levels of alignment. The second one is, is showing that you're aligned with the recruiter, which really just comes down to likability, will the recruiter like you? This does not mean showering them with fake praise or being overly friendly or rah-rah with the recruiters. What it means is, is communicating with them the way they like to be communicated to, meeting them at their level in terms of communication. If they're short and current and to the point, you communicate like that back to them, as a favor to them. This will make them like you because they'll start to identify with you. There's a lot of behavioral psychology behind this, but basically if they start to identify with you, they're gonna have a hard time rejecting you because on some level, it'd be like them rejecting themselves. So self-justification gets turned on. Similarly, if they like to tell stories, if they are long-winded, if they wanna know details about, you know, some things that aren't directly related to your work, but maybe they ask about your volunteer experience, et cetera, start to communicate with them on this level. Do they use words like I feel this way or do they use words like I think this way? Simple shifts like that, the the mode of communication, words uh, in terms of how you're interacting with the recruiter can matter. The third is the most important. It's, it's the most important in terms of fulfillment and in terms of getting hired, especially when dealing with recruiters, you have to show alignment with the company. Now, if a recruiting firm or a individual recruiter is working with a company, their most important. Uh, the thing they're, they're concerned with the most is not fulfilling just that role, but maintaining their, their correct standing, their good standing with that company is that company is paying them to find candidates. So the worst thing that can happen is that company stops liking them or doesn't like them anymore because they're not getting the right candidates for them. They're they're recommending candidates that aren't a good fit for the overall organization. It'll damage that relationship. So what they want to see in you is that you are a good fit for the company's culture values mission. You have to communicate this to recruiters, of course, to hiring managers as well. And for you, you got to find companies who have the same values as you. What are their values? Have you looked them up? Are you reading about their values? What's their mission statement? Why do they exist? Why does that company exist? What's their founder's story? You need to learn all of this and you need to show you are aligned with these values. Now you likely have many different values, just because a company's top values innovation and yours isn't maybe yours is diversity or vice versa. Maybe a company's is diversity, yours is innovation. doesn't mean you're lying. If you say that one of your top values is also innovation or diversity, you're just bringing that value to the forefront and communicating why it's important to you so that that recruiter knows that they can recommend you to that company. This is a blind spot for too many PhDs. You really focus on showing you're a good fit for the position, but not for the overall company. And companies care about this more than ever. Recruiters care about it because they want to maintain the relationship with that company. And they only want to offer people offer people to that company who are a good fit for the overall organization. And then again, for you, you want to focus on the values, the mission of the company, because it'll help you find career fulfillment, which is what we're going to talk a lot about today. We have a very special guest, Darren gold. He's a best-selling author and executive coach. We're going to talk about his book, which came out recently, master your code. We're also going to be talking to Sherry Mullen, who is a PhD that recently got hired. She has a communications background. She's an excellent communicator. And she'll be on for our career track interview. Great to see so many people on very excited to have all of you here. We're going to jump into the show me the data section. Now I'm going to bring on Mary Truscott, And we are going to go through some data on career fulfillment uh, career actualization self awareness. The question of why did you stop liking academia will be answered the question of what motivated you to finally take action to transition? What gave you that sense of urgency? This is all coming up and I'm gonna bring on Mary now. I'll make sure she can start her camera and we're gonna go through the show me the data section with Mary. Hi, Mary, how are you? I'm great, how are you? I'm good. Let me make sure I can hear you here. So what motivated you to get out of academia, Mary?
3: Um, what? I mean, for me, I have to say it was,
2: oh, huh surprise question
3: <laughs> well it was a life change that made me stop and think why i was there in the first place and then i realized it was no longer a good fit
2: mm. yeah and I, I think a triggering event usually happens and this is just the way that humans are right necessity is the mother of invention necessity drives our, our actions and and i think this this topic going to come up over and over again so we have a great show me the data section You should be able to see my screen. I'm going to make it a bit larger here for everyone, and I'll I'll zoom in a bit more. Uh, What we're talking about to start is we're going to be pretty theoretical to start, but I'm going to show you how this gets very practical very quickly. Okay, so here we're looking at uh, some, uh, really a figure, and the title is Self-Concept and Self-Actualization, Make Up Your Code, right? So this is something that Darren Gold talks a lot about. Uh, self-concept is an o- the overarching idea that we have about who we are physically emotionally socially spiritually um, practically in many different terms and there's been studies on this it references a, a study by uh, Neil in 2005 but it goes back to something that's been studied for a long time Maslow's hierarchy of needs so we're showing Maslow's hierarchy of needs or a version of it and at the top of this pyramid of needs the top half of or so are your growth needs the bottom half or so are your deficiency needs. Right. So in the growth needs. It starts with cognitive needs and aesthetic needs and self actualization needs then transcendence uh, or transcend- transcendence needs at the top. What is that. Don't worry, we'll break it down and then deficiency needs you might be more familiar with these Your esteem needs self esteem the esteem of others belonging and love needs right the sense of connection you get from your peers. Um, safety needs do you feel in a safe place or are you completely broke and you can't even make the payments on your apartment and then finally your physiological needs can you maybe you can't even pay for food you have to get on food stamps or government assistance right this can be a big wake-up call and a lot of us as PhDs have had to face this um, so just in comparing the growth needs to the deficiency needs are very different right Mary what which one which which set do you think are more more motivating
3: Um, I think deficiency needs, those are the basics that you need to, to sort of move forward or to even exist to continue doing what you're doing. So if you don't have that,
2: that's right. And I I think uh, for PhDs is kind of a paradox because we're thinkers and we, a lot of us live inside our heads and we, and we, we like the idea of us going after growth, self actualization, our cognitive needs, you know, exploring knowledge, transcending knowledge. Um, and we like to live there and we'll stay there. We don't need a lot. You know, we don't need uh, more money than anybody else. We don't need, you know, to fill a sense of purpose or to enjoy these, you know, the fulfillment of our cognitive needs or of self-actualization, um, which seems like an advantage, but can also be a curse because it means that in moderate pain, you won't make any changes because you can still get your fulfillment from yourself very easily, just from the fact that you're learning that you're experimenting, um, that you're connecting with others, that that you have some self-actualization, that you are intelligent enough to do that. And it's only when you experience extreme pain that you decide to finally make a change. And that extreme pain comes from going into these deficiency needs. You all of a sudden have a falling out with your advisor. You stop getting help from your thesis committee. You feel isolated or cut off, right? So your belonging and love needs, your esteem needs start to go away. You start questioning your value. Did I make the worst decision ever to get my PhD? You don't feel safe anymore like we talked about. You you can't, You can't. might lose your apartment. You can't make your payments on your car, your physiological needs. You're having trouble feeding yourself. You're worried about feeding your kids. And it's only when we get down here that we finally say, oh, I need to make a change. Enough is enough. And that's where many of you had to get. We, we call it the, the darkest hour for a PhD in order to make a change. So Mary, anything to add to that?
3: It's um, just that you need to, sometimes you need a wake up call, momentum keeps going and it uh, keeps you going and yeah, this darkest hour, the, when your basic needs, you realize they're not being met. Um, I think we see a lot of stories of that in the in the association group. That's where a lot of people start their job search. And
2: Why do you think they wait until they've experienced such extreme pain? I mean, beyond what we said here, I mean, more practically, I mean, because we've heard stories of people being really bad, you know, them... Being unemployed, having to be unemployed for a long time, having to like, serve ice cream, that people had to work as, as janitors. Um, the, the key, of course, is to not wait that long. So, what do you what do you think can help people be aware enough to know that they need to make a change before they start dipping into this deficiency of of, of their the needs that are that cause more pain. Just
3: to check in with themselves and make sure they're not withdrawing socially or from their family, Um, sort of all those basic ones, just to stop and take check and say, hey, is this, you know, at an acceptable level and are, you know, what's my family or my friends with my, my, um, you know, social or support network, what are they saying? I think that sometimes people kind of go off on their own trying to to figure things out or build momentum.
2: Um, Yeah, exactly. So basically... Get some data. Check in with people. I think my, uh, my mic might have been off. Is that a bit better? Yes. Can everybody hear me now? All right. So yeah, so, the, so it's important for all of you to check in with other people. Now, you can still go where you think is best. You're still in control. But if there's people you trust, ask them, like, hey, do I seem happier or less happy? Do I seem motivated or less motivated? Do I seem overly negative? Have I gone from being critical of data information to being critical of myself, myself and others? You know, it can be hard to be, uh, I guess, open or authentic or vulnerable in that sense, um, but it is important to to check in and to ask those that you trust. That's that's how you get data um, when it comes to these types of needs, and that's how you can see ahead of time the writing on the wall. Like, oh, maybe it is time for me to make a shift in my career. I can continued to compromise. I've continued to let myself get isolated. I've continued to take more and more uh, abuse in many situations. My mental health is deteriorating uh, and so forth. So the next figure we're going to look at, this is Donald Super's career development theory, um, which uh, created a vocational choice. Uh, It should be an unfolding process across the lifespan. So uh, Donald Super created this a framework it's called the life career rainbow it's based on uh, a theory of career development to provide a again a framework for developing self concept and then in the uh, and then getting to the establishment phase of your career and then going beyond that and we wanted to show this so that many of you can figure out where you are in your careers because if you're like me or mary or most phd's you've, you've likely asked yourself where am i where am i going what should be important to me um, and this is on, uh, for those of you listening by audio, if you go to career.iresearchnet.com uh, career-development, uh, you can find this figure. We will put all of these links, of course, in, in the post-show notes. And so we're looking at this career life rainbow that starts, you know, as early as age zero, and then it goes up to 80 here. And it talks about, you know, growth, the growth phase to exploration. Some of you, right, the, the age that it says here goes up to, for the exploration phase, up to like 24. You're exploring different career paths. Many of you are still exploring. I think a lot of us PhDs have pushed that exploration phase a bit longer, maybe even into our 30s. Like we're still exploring what we want to do. We're, we're used to exploring because of discovery. We're doing, you know, we're into research. And then it takes us a while to get into this establishment phase of our career, which was where you have figured out the career path that you want. Now, there's a a huge range here, Mary, right? It's 25 to 44. So, and I think, you know, this happens to be most of the people in the association, 25 to 44 on both extremes, Um, because you're trying to get established in your career. You're trying to figure out which career you want to be established in. And then after that you have 10 or 20 years, uh, if not more of, of maintenance of your career before you start to go into, uh, decline or retirement. I think retirement's maybe a nicer word. Uh, so Mary, what do you think of this? I mean, has this been true for you? Have have What have you seen of other PhDs as far as the struggle to get into that establishment phase?
3: But I think it stems a lot from the fact that people doing their PhD have been in school their whole life, most of the people, right? Mm-hmm. Unless you've taken a, a break to work or something. And so you're sort of in this phase in with this expectation that you're learning, learning, you're taking things in, you're not I mean, I guess as PhDs, we're doing, we're contributing, right? We're discovering new things, Um, but there hasn't been that like we were talking before about that much sort of pressure to move on to the establishment phase, the career phase. And so sometimes it takes this event um, or, you know, a lack of, a loss of support in academia. We see that as well. Um, That can happen, you know, right away for people or that can take some time. Um, I just wanted to comment too, if I may, the maintenance phase. I mean, we're saying that people are not s- retiring at the same company, for example. I think the establishment phase is probably stretching a bit longer, right? Especially for PhDs.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. And and I would say, you know, for PhDs, but also people in general. Um, if you can hear Mary and, and me, okay, can you type in yes in the chat box? Just double checking. Looks like uh, all of you can. Thank you very much, Cindy. Thank you, Kareem. Thank you, Joseph. Uh, So we're going to move forward now to another figure. Uh, Life Sciences Elsevier shows self-awareness connection to finding the best career fit. So we just wanted to show you that peer-reviewed journal articles, top science, right? There's a lot going into behavioral psychology now. It doesn't matter if it's life sciences or physical sciences, humanities. But at the highest level of research right now, people are looking into this, and it's important um, to understand that your education self-awareness job all need to come together in, in order for you to find the best career fit possible if you're not self-aware you're going to struggle i'll give you an example this happens all the time we have people that come into the association their phds right they hear a job title that just sounds really impressive it's medical science liaison or it's management consultant and they're like i want to do that and then we're like okay well you know, you might need to fly over to Ireland for eight weeks and work 18 hour days, not be able to see your kids, your family or whatever during that time as a as a management consultant. And, you know, you live and breathe in spreadsheets. Are you ready for this? I'm like, well, no, I, I can't do that. Medical science liaison, you have to travel 70, 80, 90% of the time. You'll be in a different city. Uh, you know, four, four days at least out of, out of the five that you're working. Uh, is that something that you can do? You know, maybe if you have a young family, you can't. So instead, you want to focus on the professional lifestyle you want to have and then fit a job title to that. Have enough self-awareness to say, these are the things I like to do. Here's how I'd like to spend my time. And then you can go out looking for, you know, any puzzle piece to fit to that. Mary, anything to add? Uh, no, I mean, I agree
3: with the, with, with what you're saying completely. Um, What,
2: what do you look for? So when you started to think about your professional career and your professional lifestyle, Mm -hmm. you know, did you make some changes? You said you had that decision point when you wanted to leave academia. What was it? Did you decide, I don't want to be in a lab 18 hours a day or what, what were some of the, the changes in your thinking?
3: Yeah. I mean, my life change was that I became a mom and relocated because of the two body problem. And so I left my research project behind. So I had the choice of sort of starting over, trying to find a way to continue it. And I actually considered that for a bit. Um, but then I realized, okay, but am I really, right now these days, do I want to run a lab? Do I want to be responsible for the fate of all these people, <laughs> right? If you don't get your grant. Um, right. And that just, it just wasn't appealing anymore. The, the sort of what made the research exciting. Um, was no longer there. So it was a lifestyle, but also, um, I think maybe some increased self-awareness.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I think it's, you can get stuck in analysis paralysis and anything. You can constantly be, we all know people like this, like every day, what does it mean? What should I do? Like sooner or later, you got to just decide and execute for a while, gather some data, and then you can go back and reevaluate. So don't get stuck on either ends of the extreme, totally oblivious, right? Until things get really bad and don't get stuck on Every day, trying to make it perfect. Like, decide you want to try something because it's a good fit. Do some planning. Try it for a a stretch of time, and then and then review it. Yeah, Um, I
3: think think if I can just add um, just the idea that we whatever for those who are trying to decide what kind of career to follow or what kind of jobs to apply for, it's not uh, like a life sentence. It's Think of it as you know a couple of years. You're you're trying things out, and there are options to move on. I think that can be a bit of a barrier for people.
2: Absolutely. Just a couple more figures, I wanna spend a few more minutes on the show me the data section. So this is a, an interesting study on what your career calling is. And it's a study that was done in China, a qualitative study of Chinese college students with a figure here that's, that we're looking at. Uh, we pulled the, the figure from ResearchGate. What does a calling mean for your career? Now, we wanted to talk about this because a lot of you are struggling on which career path is gonna give you the most fulfillment. And we hear things like follow your passion or you know, the opposite of that of don't follow your passion, follow what's going to pay you or, or what you're interested in, et cetera. But what does that actually mean? Is that your calling or not? What do other people think? And, and what do people internationally think? Um, so here we're, we're looking at the data. There's lots of different labels as far, as far as what a calling is. And then statistics in terms of what people identified with as being you know, a, a word that they use to describe their career calling. And there's different categories. So we have guiding force, meaning and purpose. And then we'll look at a third one, altruism, right? So guiding force, meaning like, is it your sense of duty, destiny? Is there a family expectation? Is it a mission that you wanna accomplish? Uh, Meaning and purpose is more of, is it your passion Self-actualization, sense of belonging, meaning, value. And then altruism is, is it all about others, benefiting others, serving your nation, positive impact. Altruism was last, not a surprise. Everybody likes to think that it's it's first, but of course it has to be something personal for you too. Um, That's why I think it's last and usually is. Um, But guiding force and, and meaning, it seems like a slight difference, right? Like follow your destiny versus being interested or following your passion. Guiding force seemed a bit higher. So with 50% responding uh, positively to that with 40% to meaning and purpose. I think really a takeaway here either way is, is that you have to feel a, it's got to be something beyond yourself. It's not about others as being beyond yourself more than anything. And that's important to have clarity on because it's got to fulfill you. You can help others more when you're doing something that is fulfilling you uh, by far. And so you got to think of it as bigger than yourself, though, in terms of there's got to be a greater meaning behind it, a greater purpose that you're connected to, a greater sense of duty that you're connected to. Mary, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I I agree. I mean, there's the lens we see everything through, which, you know, what we've grown up in. But then when you stop and think, well, what is the purpose and meaning? I think we all, yeah, altruism. I mean, people go into pharma, you want to Cure disease and so forth, but it also has to fit, you know, on a basic level with with your other needs or, or how you, who you yeah. are.
2: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, let's look at one more figure here. So this is from the Harvard, Harvard Business Review. What what self awareness really is. So the four self awareness architect types. This is a two by two map. Uh, on inter- internal self-awareness how well you know yourself against external self-awareness how well you understand others around you now we all know people that are very self-aware of themselves not very aware of other people maybe they disregard other people or you know uh, in the in the lab that i worked in there was another lab mate who used to come over to other people's desks when they were really super busy and then just start like talking to them and they just had no recognition of body language and in fact, I used to do this to myself too. I'd go to my PI and ask questions. And if he was like working busily, I didn't register like, oh, come back at a different time. <laughs> I just had a need I had to fulfill, right? So there's internal and external self-awareness. And so we have on the, uh, on the left side here, we have the low internal self-awareness versus high internal and then low ex- external on the top and high external self-awareness. And then they're just crisscrossing them like a, um, why am I drawing a blank? The genetics chart. Uh, yes. Mary, what's the name of it? Nobody come on. <laughs> I'm drawing yes. a blank.
3: I can't. it
2: Thank you. Punnett square, Lisa. <laughs> uh, Lisa That's what we're drastic. looking at. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So, people that have high internal self-awareness and low external self-awareness are introspectors. Um, they're clear on who they are, but don't challenge their own views or search for blind spots by getting feedback from others. Something we just talked about. They can harm their relationships and limit their success. People who have low internal self-awareness and low external self-awareness, they don't know who they are, what they stand for, or how their teams see them. They might feel stuck or frustrated with their performance. And you can weave in and out of these. Sometimes you get into a new situation and you're outside of your head trying to figure out what's going on, but you can't figure out what's going on. So you just reach this really dark point. Um, Let's look at both of the high external self awareness categories. So external self awareness is high. If you have both high external self awareness and high internal self awareness, this is where you want to be. This is called aware. Okay, they know who they are, what they want to accomplish and seek out and value other people's opinions. This is where leaders begin to fully realize the true benefits of self awareness. And then finally, High self-awareness, external self-awareness, but low internal self-awareness. These are people pleasers. They're so focused on appearing a certain way to others, they could be overlooking what matters to them. Over time, they tend to make choices that aren't in service to their own success or fulfillment. Now, again, you can weave in and out of these categories, but it helps to have a framework, right? Am I being self-aware internally to what I need, but am I also being self-aware externally to what's going on around me? A lot of PhDs, we are inside our own heads a lot. We can be very oblivious to the stuff outside until that trigger, triggering event when we're like, oh, I do need a job or oh, I'm on food stamps or whatever like we talked about. Mary, anything to add?
3: Yeah, just, uh, I mean, you can see and maybe even in some ways relate to, yeah, having been in these different positions and I think this self-awareness to know where you are and where you can move to or what's sort of missing um, is something that yeah,
2: people really need. All right, perfect. Please do me a favor and thank Mary in the chat box, if you would, for coming on. Thanks, Mary, for coming on for showing Me the Data. Good to see you. Notice Mary's new setup. She's got a great new lighting system and backdrop. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Only the best here at Cheeky scientists. So great to see all of you on. Thank you for that. Lisa, we have the, uh, the side view live streaming on the public page. You can share that, I believe, in the association private group as well. Just letting you know that if you haven't done it already. We're going to move on to the next section. This is our leadership interview uh, uh, section of the radio show. We have a very special guest, Darren Gold. I'm going to do a, a brief intro of Darren. Very excited to bring him on. I've been looking forward to talking with him uh, for for weeks now. Darren is a managing partner at the Trium Group, best-selling author of Master Your Code, which I'll show you here in a minute. And again, all of these links will be in the post-show notes. Darren is a managing partner at the Trium Group, where he serves as an executive coach to the CEOs of many of the world's most influential companies. He is the author of the book, Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. The book has already received significant praise from the CEOs of companies like The Home Depot, Lululemon, Dropbox, StubHub, Roach, and many and from experts in the field of leadership and personal development like Greg McCohen, author and the New York Times best-selling uh, author of uh, Essentialism. This is Darren Gold's LinkedIn profile. So, most of us, right, as PhDs, focused on our career, are active on LinkedIn. Please do me a favor and connect with Darren on LinkedIn the cheeky way. Send him a nice message. Tell him thank you for the value that I know he's going to add here on the radio show. Be sure to check out his website too, darrenjgold.com, D-A-R-R-E-N-J-gold.com. You see a great uh, image of his book here. I love the the cover, Master Your Code, What's Keeping You from Leading an Extraordinary Life? Check out his page, and then we'll put the Amazon link to his book here. Go buy this book today. It's an incredible book, Mastering Your Code. It'll really help you in terms of figuring out the right career path for you. We'll come back to all of these, but now I want to bring on Darren. I'm going to make sure you can start his camera here, and then we're going to jump in to talking with Darren about how you can master your own code and how you can find the right career path for you. Darren, good to see you. I'm in trouble you with
0: the audio, so I uh, had to switch to phone. Hopefully you can hear and see me okay.
2: I can, yeah. I don't know. If you t- turn your phone the other way, it might do the horizontal view and everybody can see you, but if not, that's perfectly fine too. It's even even better. Thanks for joining, Darren. How are you?
0: Uh, I'm great, uh, and I'm glad to be on, and thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: Of course. No, thanks for being here. The question I like to ask all authors, I I just have to start with this, is why did you write a book? It's such a big undertaking. What gave you enough energy and momentum and desire to create this book uh, specifically about mastering your code?
0: Yeah, maybe uh, one way to answer it is to say, what was keeping me from writing a book? uh, And then answer the question that you've posed, because I think that'll be really relevant to your audience, right? I mean, in so many ways, we're held back. And I love the fact that you dove into Maslow's hierarchy of needs from being self-actualized. And for me, um, a big part of my identity, subconscious identity, was I'm not an author. And I held all sorts of attendant beliefs um, along with that identity, like there's nothing really interesting that I have to write about, or I have nothing original to say, or I need another five or 10 years. And I imagine people listening to this can relate in one way or another to mm. those sorts of limiting beliefs. And I'm a person that does this work for a living. Wow. Uh, and I, here I was holding a limiting belief. A person who identifies as not an author will talk a lot about writing a book, we'll, but will never get around to writing one. <laughs> and yeah. so part of the unlock for me psychologically was just to identify, examine, and shift that belief in a very powerful way and begin to embrace and embody an identity, which is I'm absolutely an author. There's a gift I have to offer to the world, and it's my responsibility and privilege to do so. So that was, that was one way of answering your question. The other was I had a, uh, a son that was leaving to college a couple, two and a half years ago, and I wrote him a letter, uh, and that really, it was sent around by th- you know, thousands of times, so it struck a chord Uh, In many people and I realized there was the seeds of a book in that letter and it was sort of the inspiration and catalyst for the book
2: That's amazing very different answer than we've heard in the past and I think for all of you listening It's important for you to understand what what darren just said about the power of your identity Which comes back to self-actualization, etc Like you have to see yourself and if you're not there yet You can use this to your advantage for a lot of you who are you see yourself as an academic now you got to start seeing yourself as a executive, a corporate executive, or a manager, industry professional, it's, it's, yeah, you can definitely use to your advantage, right?
0: I write about that. I have an entire, entire chapter on uh, owning your identity. And the most powerful driver of human behavior is the desire to be consistent with your identity. So if you're holding an identity, that's limiting in whatever uh, way, uh, that is inconsistent with the things that you really want in life, guess what, you're going to act out of that identity, you have no choice. It's just the way human beings are driven. And uh, I, I like to say every single belief we hold is made up, it's constructed. And if it's made up and constructed, we can reconstruct it and that includes your identity. So a big part of the work that I do with very senior leaders is to confront this subconscious identity that you may have been holding for years and years and years and to begin to architect a new identity and to believe in it with certainty. And all of a sudden, the actions you will take out of that identity will sort of naturally flow. And so I always challenge people to get in touch with what is your identity and what does it need to be in order to meet the things that are most important to you in your life.
2: Yeah. Very, very powerful. When you realize you can design uh, a new identity Yeah, Um, that can help uh, others as much as yourself. So I want to make sure we understand that the foundations here, you brought up the book, uh, you've talked about identity. What is the code? Can you break us down? What, what is this code and, and uh, yeah. what do we need to understand about it?
0: Well, the basic premise of the book is that we all construct over the course of our lifetime, but mostly in our formative years, in our childhood years, uh, what I call a computer program. That's the metaphor I chose. And I define that up front in the book as a set of safety-based, subconscious beliefs, values, and rules that automatically drive your behavior, but that limit your results. And uh, I assert that the most fundamental choice and area of awareness uh, that we can achieve is to know, number one, that we've been, our, maybe our entire life has been run by a program. I say in the book, I was almost 40 years old when I discovered that I was living a life uh, run by a program written by a seven-year-old boy. Um, and that seven-year-old boy was writing a program that needed to keep him safe and protected. It was safety-based. And I didn't even know it. And this discovery that we're driven by, that we operate out of a set of subconscious beliefs, values, and rules is incredibly uh, liberating. And then I offer a distinction, which is a code, which is, as opposed to a program, a intentionally constructed set of beliefs, values, and rules that is purposefully designed to lead to extraordinary results. And that choice is really the essence of the, the book and the guidebook for how do you construct this code that's really gonna serve you rather than being served Uh, By being run by a program
2: fascinating and I'm really gonna dig in here because this is something that I've always been very interested in because it's it's one thing to say right like Believe I know my beliefs are constructed through childhood, whatever and then I know I can rewrite them But how do you actually do that because it's it's so anchored in you, right? And how do you do it in an effective way where you don't just feel like you're lying to yourself about those beliefs, right? Because you might have a belief, it could be anything, like superpower, it could be religion, it could be about what you're, what's possible for you, what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. And, and how do you, if you know you wanna do something, because if you know you wanna rewrite your belief to help you move forward in a certain way, how do you go, go about doing that in a way that sticks?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And sometimes it takes, um, you know, what the leadership, ex, the late leadership expert, Warren Bennis called a, a crucible moment. You know, some crisis that forces you to re-examine everything. And in my case, that was, that, that was what happened. But I, I want to assert that you don't need that, right? That you don't need to have some major life-altering event um, to, 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 to sort of wake you up to the potential that you have as a human being. Uh, it starts with awareness. I, I'll tell this very, very short story of, that I share in the book by the late author David Foster Wallace, of these two fish swimming along. And the older fish swims by and he says, hey boys, how's the water? And they look at him in bewilderment and they say, what the hell is water? And it's a great metaphor for life because we're metaphorically swimming through the waters of our culture and our conditioning, Mm -hmm. our programming, our beliefs, values, and rules, and we don't even know it. So I love the fact that you showed the slide on awareness because I think the first and my first chapter is just being aware of the absurdity. And like, we can laugh at this, right? That here I am an adult, you know, many of you with PhDs, right? Living complex lives, taking on perhaps uh, leadership responsibilities and we're operating out of a set of unexamined beliefs that were constructed, you know, when we were children. To me, that, that notion for myself was a massive game changer because it now started to, it pointed to the absurdity of the human condition and the opening that said, wait a second, I really have this choice, which I call the human superpower, Um, And then there's a whole thing about, okay, how do you actually choose? And to your point, how do you make it stick, which gets into all the neuroscience behind behavior change and the importance of practice. And I use the concept of mastery. This is self-mastery is a lifelong journey to not only being aware, but to engaging deliberately in new behaviors consistently so that we begin to essentially create new neural pathways so that new behaviors become habitual. So there's a whole element of that. Uh, that's important to understand.
2: And I was seeing some good questions come up here. Uh, So I, I want to break down practically like the first steps we can take to break down. Yeah. yeah. But also I want to know what's feasible because for me, I'm always like, okay, let's test the boundaries of this. I want to like not experience fear again, because there's no use to it. Like we live in a very different age. There's no tigers chasing us. Well, you know, whatever. Yeah. 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 So how could I, I just, how could I stop being afraid of things that I don't need to be afraid of anymore, things that I was afraid of at five or seven. How can I be, you know, some of us are held back by an over, this is always a tricky one to articulate, A, uh, a too strong of a sense of morality, right? Like we feel bad for our success. So I, I want to tamp that yeah. down. I don't want to feel so guilty or bad all the time because uh, I know it's holding me back from higher levels of success. So yeah, what's feasible in ter- terms of changing your, your beliefs? Like how much can you change them and, and then- how do we do it on the most practical first step level?
0: Great. I'll I'll answer both those questions and give that sort of like, here's a first place to go to in a a moment. So I would say like these beliefs that are core to who we think we are, what I would like to say is who we wound up being, which I think is an important distinction um, are going to be with us, whether we like it or not for the rest of our lives. They were too important. They served too important of a purpose early on. And we have to honor them. I always caution people, don't diminish or demonize or try to get rid of. As soon as you start to do that, you're going to prompt a a, 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 a reluctance uh, to change. You're going to induce a a reluctance to change. It's an honoring of that. But it's an expansion. Mm. So, uh, you know, I share in the book, I have this incredible need to be likable. Uh, And I'll talk about that in the moment as the first place to go to. And it wasn't like I want to get rid of being likable but I want to begin to understand that I have some choice. When do I really need to be likable? When is it okay to let go a little bit? When is it okay to put my likability at risk? And now my actions have massively expanded and therefore the probability of getting the results I want in life go way up. So I have a different relationship to the belief. It's still there to this fear belief or this morality belief or whatever it is, but I'm less tightly gripped to it and I have agency, I have choice. When do I deploy and when do I not? And that is the human superpower, this idea of choice. The place to go to, I often say, is um, what I call a survival strategy. Everybody has one and everybody has a primary one and there are three types. There's belonging, distancing and controlling. Uh, I'll share my example and then we can go deeper if you'd like. I was eight, eight years old when I finally came to the US from London, England. And I can tell you having an English accent at age 18 is cool. At age eight, it's not cool at all. Really? (laughs) Particularly in Southern California. And I was teased, you know, mercilessly. And so my survival strategy was a belonging one. What do I do to be accepted? And as an eight-year-old, subconsciously, I had no idea I was doing this. I developed, as I just shared, this intense need to be liked. And it became this strategy to be safe, to be loved, to be included, and to feel to feel very safe. And I became really good at it. Mm. Um, I became student body president of my high school. I had early professional success. I was the guy who was, uh, you know, given to the very difficult client because I had this sort of likability superpower. So did it serve me? Absolutely. But at some point, it reached the limits of its effectiveness. Um, I had a really hard time being honest and direct with people because it was threatened this likability need that I had. And so I robbed people of important feedback. I diluted conversations. And then ironically, I um, Deprive myself of growth because I was so likable people had a hard time giving me direct feedback And so it wasn't until I figured out that I had this and I could change it That a whole new set of actions So the the place to start often is to go to a place in your childhood where you had some traumatic Event now it could be serious trauma or it could be what I would call lowercase t trauma Teasing bullying not to diminish that but you know not the not not severe trauma and in that moment I will guarantee you That you subconsciously constructed some belief or rule. And it will fit into one of these categories. Belonging, the need to be liked, the need to be accepted. Controlling, the need to win, the need to achieve, the need to get ahead, the need to be perfect. Um, Distancing, the need to be above it all, to be right, to be smart. I have a bit of that. We all have a mix of all of these, but there's probably one that's primary for you. And I bet the people are listening, oh yeah, the need to be smart or, oh yeah, the need to win or, oh yes, it's for me, it's a perfection need. Whatever it is, it will fall into one of those categories. Start there. Because Mm. that need really served you and it's the one that's going to be the hardest to change. But if you do, if you begin to create some separation and some space to get choice, it will open up a whole new way of seeing your own potential and possibility.
2: And I'm guessing too, I mean, I guess you could, use that awareness to your advantage, right? If that's a big driver for you, like let's, let's try to make it practical. So we have people here yeah. that are looking to get into their first or next industry job. Some people that yeah. are, you know they've, you know, maybe they're 30, they've never worked in industry. They're trying to do it for the first time. So how can I use this code? How can I use my current beliefs, rewrite my beliefs to help me become a new person really, you know, in my yeah. mind first, so that I actually throw myself into a job search or a career. Cause we have a lot of people that, they can't make that mental leap yet. They still see themselves yeah. as an academic PhD doing, maybe just doing the noble work or whatever and they, or maybe they're afraid of rejection, they have imposter syndrome, whatever it is, and they can't fully commit even to their job search uh, yet because of something holding them back. What, what would you recommend?
0: Yeah, so I would say start to identify what belief is really getting in the way of the thing that you really wanna do, okay? Mm. So you, first is identify what that is. Uh, number two is to honor it. Where does it really serve me, this imposter syndrome, right? Well, it really serves me because I'm careful about the choices that I make. I don't just take, you know, jump in and take risk, right? I'm thoughtful. Um, I want to make sure that my competencies line up with the things that, you know, I'm hoping to do. I'm not one of those people that just sort of pie in the sky, right? There's a whole host of reasons that you have that belief in the first place. It's protected you, but you're playing not to lose with that kind of belief. You're not playing to win. And so the next step is to say, okay, if I were to play to win, not just to be safe, because by the way, the, you know, the saber-toothed tiger in the bush, the physical survival, the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, for us in this, you know, listening to this, for most of us, if not all of us, those needs have been met, the physical needs. This is about psychological needs. So I'm like, where can I play to win psychologically where I don't need to be as safe? Um, and where has this current belief held me back? And start to sort of like, okay, and where will it hold me back in whatever this new endeavor is that I'm trying to uh, aspire to or achieve? And then say, what would it look like if I began to practice shifting that belief? What would a new belief look like? And, and I would say start small. You know, mm-hmm. start in your, profession, in your personal relationships. Or this is a practice. And do something for 30 days every single day where you're testing that belief. Um, I was just literally in a coaching session um, this morning and I use the example, you get into an Uber uh, or a Lyft. And uh, for me, I was, this was just recent, and I do this work for a living. I was with my wife, the, the love of my life, the driver's um, tailgating the car in front of me, and here I am saying, should I really say something? Am I gonna hurt his feelings? Here's my likability, I'm 50 years old almost. And, like, and I said very clearly, well, here's my time to practice. You can do it everywhere in every situation. And I clearly said, Uh, would you please mind giving the car in front of you more distance? And I said it with no energy. It was mature. It was clear. It was a little out of my comfort zone, believe it or not. And I bet people can relate to this. And he said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. That was a simple Mm -hmm. conversation. So these are opportunities you can see all the time to test. What is that one belief that's going to hold you back from being at your best, from doing what you really want to do? And you got to do it daily. you got to test it daily because what you're trying to do is you're starting to rewire your brain so that the – act of doing the thing that was uncomfortable now becomes very habitual.
2: Absolutely. And if uh, you're a person that you're the reverse of that, where you would have been yelling at the guy in the first two seconds, maybe you hold back and you say it neutrally, but that's a great example. Yeah. What
0: would it look like to do that directly, but with kindness? Yeah. Right. That may be your growth area, which is, you know, oftentimes people think direct and kindness are these mutually exclusive things. It's another thing I talk about in the book. I say, no, no, they're healthy tensions. They're a polarity just like yin and yang it's ancient wisdom how do i begin to integrate opposites that i thought were were mutually exclusive
2: mm, well said very last question i just want to i want to yeah. talk about after getting into a career maybe making sure the career is a right fit again making it practical you know on the fulfillment side we talked about you know these you know, maslow's needs if we're going up that the the hierarchy and we're trying to fill uh, a sense of uh, self-actualization, maybe eventually transcendence in our career. What would you recommend there? What does what your, your framework with the code have to say? Like, are you just looking for yeah. a company that has the same values as you, the same beliefs? What do, you, what do yeah. you recommend?
0: Well, my first thing I say is don't be in such a rush. You know, mm-hmm. particularly if you're early on in your career, there's, there's this sort of notion, I think, with you know, our current generation, and it's a lovely notion, comes from the best of places, that I got to figure out exactly what I'm intended to do in the world. You know and i'm I'm 25 years old and i'm like wait you know hold on a second i love the enthusiasm right but um this requires time and experience so where i start with is be patient with yourself you know allow experiences to unfold we are living longer we are in you know uh 10 plus if not 20 plus different jobs throughout our career right this is the new norm so experiment right don't be in such a rush be attuned to what it is that you really want to do and what you're really meant to do, but don't be in such a rush. I, I offer my last chapter a number of different frameworks. The one I love is the Japanese one uh, out Ikigai, which is the reason for getting up in the morning. That's the literal translation. And it says, I think you alluded to it a little early uh, you know, ago, which was, what do I love to do? You know, What am I really good at? Which you got to be really honest about. Um, what does the world need and what will I get paid for? That's just a really nice framework for thinking Again, not like immediately, but in the long term, as you begin to discover what are my real unique talents, all of the ancient wisdom says that there's something in you, right? The blueprint of your soul that's yearning to be actualized, allow that to come out with some time and then to find a place where, where is this going to be really honored, respected? Where am I going to get paid for this? Um, And that will happen, but don't be in such a rush.
2: Well said. Thank you very much for being on with us, Darren. Great insights. Please thank Darren in the chat box. One of the the best conversations we've had. Really, really looking forward uh, to having more of our our, our listeners here and our attendees read your book, uh, Master the Code. I'll show it again on the screen. Darren, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much.
2: Please thank Darren again if you haven't already. I'm going to show his book on the screen again, Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life we have been having just some great book covers on here. I know you don't judge a book by its cover, but I love this cover. Check it out, five stars. You can get it on Amazon right now. Uh, Hopefully what Darren was talking about resonated with you and you saw the practical application there. Belief systems are very, very powerful, especially limiting beliefs in even in academia right now, especially when it comes to finding out the right career path. We talk a lot about imposter syndrome these days. We talk a lot about the limiting beliefs of, you know, that that it really have just been overcome in the last decade. That can you even can you do good research, good work in industry versus academia? Some somehow academia more noble. We know now that it's not, but it used to be thought that you were a sellout or you're going to the dark side if you went to industry. That's an example of a, a limiting belief or something you might cling to to keep you from committing to your job search. So don't do that be patient, but also be active, execute, jump in, don't be a perfectionist. I really love what he said about the three different uh, beliefs, or I guess modes that we go into when we feel threatened. And I'm, I'm guessing all of you immediately identified with this. When things go bad, people turn against you, uh, You know what, what's that safety zone for you? Do you uh, try to get other people to like you? Do you isolate yourself and say, I don't need anybody? or do you start to control everything? Um, So great insights. Definitely check out that book. Are you a PhD student or postdoc who wants to get an industry job? Are you tired of being paid one third or less of what you are worth in academia, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you've been uploading resumes over and over again, but you haven't heard anything back from an employer. Go to phdsgethired.com and get our free materials on how to get hired in industry. All you have to do is go to phdsgethired.com put in your name and email address, and we will send you our resume guide, our networking scripts, and our other free trainings to help you start your job search now. Again, just go to phdsgethired.com. Very excited to keep the radio show moving. We are going to bring on what we call as our internal guest for our career track segment. Uh, very excited to bring on Sherry. I'm going to show her, her bio here on her LinkedIn profile. So you should be able to see Sherry's picture here. This is Sherry Mullen. She is a PhD and communication associate at the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, NCSBN. Uh, she earned her PhD in communications from Wayne State University, where she wrote her enthographic dissertation, speaking of communication, I just learned a new word, on the American reception to Korean pop culture. Very interesting. She has also published four book chapters, a journal article, a book review on Korean topics. Uh, in other words, she's not a she's not a nurse, but she is applying her PhD level skills in the not-for-profit role. Uh, she is working in industry in the nonprofit sector. This is her LinkedIn profile. You can go to linkedin.com slash ian slash Sherry. Sherry Turmolin. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Sherry Turmolin. So LinkedIn.com slash I N slash S H E R R I T E R M O L E N. Go connect with Sherry on LinkedIn. Again, do it the cheeky way. Tell her, thank you for the value that I know she's going to add. And with that, we're going to bring on Sherry. I'm going to make sure she can turn on her video here. And then we're going to talk to her about her transition into industry. And that's the great thing about our association We have PhDs from all different backgrounds who have been able to transition into industries of all different kinds. And one of the limiting beliefs a lot of PhDs have, a limiting belief you likely have is that you can't do something in industry. Like you could never be a XYZ because your background and training doesn't exactly match that. You could never do this because you have no industry experience. It's not true. And that's why we have this career track section. um, So you know that anything is indeed possible. So Sherry, I just gave you co-host permissions. You should be able to jump on here. I'm gonna see if I can help out a bit here. We'll have Mary and Lisa jump in. We'll see if we can get on Sherry for this section. I know you're there, Sherry. You're probably listening to me. There's a little button in the bottom left for a microphone and a camera that you should be able to turn on. Oh, I can hear you. Halfway there. And Sherry, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. All right, so we got you on by audio. We just need there to we go. Out. There we go. We did it. How are you? <laughs> Great. How are you? Very good. Good to see you. Thanks for being with us. Great to see you too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so very excited, Sherry. Sherry's been, um. Incredible. Ever since she transitioned, she came on a radio show, and now she's uh, she came on a webinar earlier for one of our, uh, I think it was our resume webinar last week, and now you're here on the radio show. So very exciting. This new chapter of your life. How how do you feel?
1: Well, today, actually, I feel a little sick. So excuse me if I cough or sneeze or sniffle a little bit during this, but um, really, compared to being in a PhD program, I feel great. (laughs) So I'm doing great. I have a great new job, and I'm really happy.
2: Yeah, and I I appreciate you being here. I know that, you know, kind of like what Darren was saying, you've had a lot of experiences in your career already. You worked in industry, and then you went back to academia. Um, what, What, I guess, was the moment in academia where you realized, or maybe you always knew that you weren't going to stay there, you were going to do something else?
1: Well, I think I was really into my dissertation by the time I was just like, I just don't wanna live like this anymore. Hmm. I I didn't wanna work 24 hours a day, seven days days a week. And I thought, I wanted time with my husband. I wanted time with my friends. I was tired of like missing all of my um, friends that were coming to town, coming to Chicago where I live. I couldn't even see them. Hmm. And so I just decided I didn't want the lifestyle anymore.
2: Hmm. And when you started though, did you think you were gonna be a professor perhaps?
1: Oh, absolutely. Like the whole point of going to a PhD program for me was to become a professor, especially my undergrad professors at Olivet College and Olivet, Michigan were really inspiring. And even way back then, I thought, wow, one day I want to be just like them. So I thought about going into a PhD program a long time ago, but it was really for the teaching aspect because I went to a small liberal arts college and they were, a, it was a teaching institution. Institution. So um and when I went into my Ph.D. program, I had been doing some research in my master's program. I loved doing the research, but that wasn't really my focus. But over the time of the Ph.D. program, I did go into the research a lot more. That's why I published quite a bit at this point. And I really loved doing it. But um, I love research, teaching and service. But I still found myself on the way out of the academy.
2: Yeah. And you mentioned that you wanted to make a change. You wanted a lifestyle change, something that we've, we've already talked about on the show quite a bit. You heard me reference, you know, the darkest hour uh, <laughs> moment uh, that a lot of us had as PhDs, you know, th- that triggering event where you realized that things had gotten pretty bad. You had sunk down, I guess, on Maslow's hierarchy and you weren't going to deal with it anymore. What was that darkest hour for you?
1: Oh, you know, I, when people ask me if I would do it again, I, I say no. I wouldn't do it again
2: um
1: my even my first year if i really think back to my first year and the, the way things were going i look back and i'm like why did i stay um there were a lot of issues the program unfortunately just i didn't have a really supportive advisor it wasn't a supportive graduate community i mean certain people were trying but there was a lot of competing for resources and just not a lot of support there and i wasn't especially happy but i think once my feet touch campus, I just wasn't going to give up. Mm. And um, I went through a lot. There was a lot of um, pretty negative things that, you know, that happened along the way, like many PhD students experience. And I went through two advisors. um, And when I um, released, I will use that word, my first advisor, um, it it was not a politically correct way I did it. I mean, I was just at the end of my rope. I mean, I was just It it was not a lot of fun, unfortunately. Mm. So I don't know why I honestly hung on for so long, but um, I kept believing because I liked the work so much that I was still going to become a professor. Mm. And um, I I don't really know if there was like just that straw that broke the camel's back, but it was just, I got to my dissertation and one of the things that happened was my advisor who, my second advisor, who was certainly an improvement, but she sent me some feedback that she had held on to for 14 months. And it was feedback from the rest of my committee members and it added several more weeks, maybe months to my dissertation process. And I mean, I think i was so devastated at that point that, I mean, I think I cried for three days before I worked on my dissertation again. Wow. And so um, I think that might've been toward the end of my idea that I was going to apply for PhD physicians.
2: So what, you know, I don't know if you heard Darren talk about these kind of three modes that we go into when we're faced with that kind of stress, I guess, you know, when the, the, the sad part of the crying's over, like, what did you go into? Did you distance yourself and allow yourself to get isolated? I know a lot of PhDs do this. Did you be, you, know, you you know go into that kind of controlling phase, focusing on what you can control? Did you try to get people to like you? What, what were the initial steps, I guess, to correct it? And then I'll, I'll ask later about, you know, what practical steps you started to take in your, in your job search?
1: I think just in general, like I'm one of those kind of people that when I'm going through a lot of stress, I want to talk it out. So I think I was on, I was working from Chicago at that time, Wayne State's in Detroit, but I had moved back to Chicago to work on my dissertation. And I used, um, I used messaging on Facebook and stuff to keep in contact with a lot of my PhD student colleagues. And I was using a lot of that just to tell people what was going on and getting their support. I really needed that. So I think it's that likability thing. Um, perhaps was the thing that I needed. I just needed people to tell me that I wasn't a terrible PhD student, that I was doing things well and that I, you know, that I could be successful and I needed that at that time.
2: Yeah. And and, and so that eventually turned into you practically starting a job search. Now, did you wait till you defended your dissertation? Did you start looking at, you know, different options? How did you get things off the ground?
1: I did wait until I finished my dissertation. Um, I wasn't sure when I would finish um, because it had been, oh, I'm going to defend in two months for like two years. Um, So I just didn't know exactly when I would be done. Um, So that's one reason. Um, But I don't think I could have handled a job search and a dissertation at the same time. I don't know how people do that. People who do that, you are amazing. Um, That's a lot of work because a job search is a full-time job. Yeah. And a dissertation is more than a full-time job. So I, um, uh, I waited until I was done and then I took a few months off and I went on a few vacations, which I needed immensely and they were great and I highly recommend vacations. Um, And then about, um, let's see, I defended in March, I was hooded in May and then I started my job search really, probably really seriously September. I applied for a couple of jobs before that, but it wasn't um, a full blown job search until September. And then it took me a full year to find the job I'm in now.
2: Wow. So you, you started to get your job search off the ground. What were some of the early, I guess, mistakes you would make? Did you make some mistakes and realize later that you needed to make some changes or uh, you're, you're nodding? Yes. So I'm just curious. Oh, yeah. cause, Cause a lot of us start, we try to dive in on our own and we don't realize how, how it works. What are some of those early mistakes that I guess if you could go back, you would have saved time by not doing? Well,
1: because I had had a lot of industry experience before I went into uh, master's or a phd program i didn't really realize how much things had changed when i first graduated from undergrad which was a hundred million years ago i um it was still seriously look in the newspaper find a job ad write a letter on an electronic typewriter or a computer if you have one put it in the mail with a stamp um so um things had changed and over the years i was even looking for jobs and they had just gone online Um, where I think job boards existed in my last job search, which was probably around 2005, 2006. And so I graduate from this PhD program and now everything's ATSs and networking. And I theoretically should have had a professional network because I had a professional career before I went into my PhD program. But I tried that network and yeah, not one person, not one responded to me. And I tried all of like the cheeky things and they still didn't respond to me. Um, so I really had to start at the ground up, just like a lot of people who have zero experience and, um, my resume didn't have the right keywords. I was just sending them to whom it may concern. Um, I was sending it to an ATS and not following up. I wasn't networking and it really wasn't until I joined Cheeky Scientist and I went through the modules that it really started changing my style.
2: Hmm. So, and, and what were some of the changes that you made and then what led to, whatever the connection was for the, the job that you got hired. Was it the resume? Was there uh, somebody you had a, a talk to on the phone, a, a referral? What happened?
1: Well, in my case, it, it was definitely the resume. Um, one of the great things about the organization I am at now, the National Council of State Boards and Nursing, is that it doesn't have an ATS. Ah. Yay! <laughs> so- um, Very rare. Yeah, because we're not quite that big. Um, we only have, I think, around 130 employees And so smaller companies like that have 10 or something, they're not gonna um, be able to afford an ATS. So maybe starting with some small companies is a great place for cheekies to go if they're having a hard time getting around ATSs. Um, So that's one thing, but my resume um, really stood out. Um, I actually applied for a position called a research associate. And that position was going to be charged with writing literature reviews for the researchers in our division. And when my um, HR director sent my resume on to my manager, she looked at my resume and was like, hmm, not exactly what I was looking for, but I could use her for this, this, and this. And I think the cheeky system about how I organized my resume and the way that I made my skills stand out, especially my transferable skills, I think that's what really caught her attention. And so she brought me in for my first interview. And when she explained, that she wouldn't bring me in probably for that research associate position, but that she would create a new position around my skills. I think I got so excited that I thought I'd never be brought back for a second interview because I was that excited. I was like, really? I mean, it, and it's just, it's, it's amazing. It's an extraordinary right. position.
2: So then you got, you got, did you get brought in for an interview right away? Or did you have a phone screen first or a video interview?
1: I had a phone screen first and it, I didn't think it went well, to be honest. Um, Why? I, so when the HR person had said that it would take about 30 minutes, I think I was on the phone for like less than five. Oh, wow. And I thought, wow, he's just, I just blew that. And so I think I went on the Cheeky Sciences Facebook page after that and was like, oh, woe is me. I've been looking for a year and I haven't found a job and I can't believe how bad this is. And then I followed up with him with an email, just thanking him for the interview. And within 24 hours, I had a response from him saying they'd be in touch again soon, and Mm. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I had totally misinterpreted Mm. that call. I can't believe they're still interested, so I mean, I was very nervous, of course, and so I was brought in for a second interview, and this is a not-for-profit organization. It's not at a university, but when I came in for my second interview, my now manager brought in a couple people from um, our division, and we went to lunch, so I had like almost like it was almost like going to a campus interview in some way. It's like we went to lunch, it was very conversational and we had this really um, great talk about my skills and how they'd fit into the department. And then um, after that, um, they made the offer and it, it was amazing, it was like a fairy tale come true. I mean, this job, you would not believe my job. It is exactly, if I could have like written down exactly this job, it would have been like the job I got.
2: So what, what do you do in this role for others who might be trying to get into nonprofit or something similar? What do you do on a day-to-day basis?
1: Well, you know, this is something that I didn't know even existed when I was looking for a job. So, I mean, how do you even know to apply for a job like this? Because it didn't exist. They created it around me. So this is a great message for every cheeky is apply to organizations that you might care about, even if they don't have a role that's open for you right now. Yes. Um, so I do three big things here. One, is I work on this initiative that's called the, um, well, it's this, it's this educational initiative. So we offer online courses to nursing regulators. And we use an, a learning management system, Canvas. So a lot of Cheekies would know that as, you know, as a competitor to Blackboard, D2L, all of those that we use in universities, it is run like a university. So basically, I'm a university professor and a not-for-profit. I get to develop communication courses. I get to teach communication courses and I get to work on that whole arm. Like I get to be the one of the admins for the LMS and everything. Amazing. And then, so that's the first thing I do. The other thing I do and get ready for this, this is even more exciting. I, I get to be the incoming acquisitions editor for the journal of nursing regulation. We have an academic slash professional journal that's published by Elsevier and I get to be the acquisitions editor. Of all the people in the world, me, I get to do that. It's amazing. I mean, I've wanted to be a writer and an editor my whole entire life. And that's why I went to a PhD program and to do those kind of things. And here I'm doing it.
2: It's amazing. And I I think it's just a great lesson for all of you who maybe have put yourself in a box where you're like, I can get into this role or this role with my background. That's it. Or you, you really like this company, but there's no position that matches what you think the job title needs to be. But if you apply to job titles that are similar whatsoever, you get in for the interview. I mean, how many stories have we heard like this, like Sherry's, where they sit down and say, you know, this might not be a good fit, but we have this better role, or this better fit role, or this higher role for you. You're going to be looked at differently as a PhD, especially if you're following best practices with your resume and following best practices on, on interviews. And I also love what you said, Sherry, about not counting yourself out. Sometimes things feel like they go really bad. Maybe he was late for another meeting, right? Like you never know. Yeah. So we internalize and we stew on it. We have no idea. I mean, you, and following up uh, to to keep it moving forward and keeping the impetus on you. It's just an amazing story. Um, as far as where you are now, I always like to to ask this last question of, you know, where do you see yourself going? Where have others in your role gone? What are some of the departments or positions that you work with cross-functionally or or even you know vertically? What can you tell us about the I guess the, the larger ecosystem of your position.
1: Well, one thing about this organization that I really like is that like my manager says, if you have an idea, just bring it to the table. And if they can do it, they'll do it. Like Mm -hmm. if it's something that can serve our members, she says that we can do it. And so I see there's so much growth in this organization that, you know, if I want to create a new initiative or if I have some new idea for some new educational program, I mean, there's no limitations on what I could do here. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of people getting promoted in this organization. I see new positions being created. I mean, yes, people do leave the organization and go to maybe other not-for-profits or back into healthcare, perhaps. But right now, for me, I'm focused on staying here for the long-term and seeing like, what I can do. Um, one of the g- great exciting things is that I am starting an editing certificate program. And there's professional development dollars that I'm going to use here. And that's going to help me in the, uh, my journal work here. And so that's a really exciting initiative for me that I'm going to add more education and more skills to my position. And it's going to be, help me grow and see what else I can do for this, for NCSBN.
2: Amazing. Sherry, thank you so much for being on, especially not feeling so well. I hope you do feel better. Thank you. Congratulations for all your success. I'm, I'm glad you found your, your dream job. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me and good luck to everybody.
2: Please thank Sherry in the chat box if you would. Thank you for being on, especially uh, a little bit under the weather. Hope you feel better, Sherry. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you, everyone. Really appreciate you being on today. This takes us to the end of our live stream. So we did a special live stream for our first Tuesday radio show. All radio shows will be on Tuesdays now, in general, every other week. If you want to learn more about the Cheeky Scientist Association and getting hired in your next industry job, first or next, go to phdsgethired.com. If you're watching either stream right now, we really appreciate you being on. Go to phdsgethired.com, put your name and email on that list. You'll get information about our programs, and you'll be able to sign up to get all radio show updates. Make sure you go to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to our podcast. All of our radio shows with some extras are put on the podcast. If you subscribe, they'll be delivered to you there, and you can listen to them in parts anytime we have incredible leadership, inter- interdisciplinary guests, uh, as well as a career track guest on every radio show, a show me the data section, a PhD advantage section. So make sure you subscribe now. Thanks everyone. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Pom, pom, bitch. No, no, no,